You're listening to the Podcasting the Urban series. I'm Dallas Rogers, and this is the final part of our panel discussion with Shane Anderson, Anya Kangeiser, Justine Lloyd, and Miles Herbert. It's also the final part of the series. Enjoy. I'll throw this one to the panel. What is the relationship or what is the connection between the narrative and the technology? What's Is it okay to have a great narrative recorded on crappy technology or you know how does that play out um i just listened to a new series that radiotopia put out um through the kitchen sisters which is the keepers and it's about archives and stuff and honestly i would say 80 percent of it was recorded on their phones so i'm it sounded to me like they emailed these archivists and said hey go into the archives with your cell phone record it and then send it back to me and it's one of the best things i've heard um, in like public radio, American public radio that they've put out on a, on a long time. It's really great. And the sound quality is terrible. <laughs> it's, um, it's really bad. It's mixed really well. It's told really well. Um, the music is amazing. Um, and it's really great radio. Um, first 10 minutes is some of the best radio I've heard in a really long time. The sound is horrific. <laughs> so I, in my mind, obviously the narrative trumps the technology and trumps the tech. Um, but... It, it, sometimes it can be a balance um, and if, if you have the means then yes definitely go but for me personally I think the narrative tr- trumps tech and, and trumps sound um, yeah I think audio is a very forgiving medium um, I agree I've listened to podcasts um, I'm really into academic podcasts and there's some I've listened to um, particularly from the anthropology world which are recorded so terribly (laughs) people are bumping tables they're like yelling into the microphone I'm like having to coast the volume turn up and down all the time but what they're talking about is so fascinating that I'm hooked anyway um so I think there is definitely a balance um I think some listeners are turned off by bad audio but ultimately it's it's facilitating a voice and a story and yeah I think narrative narrative is the most important thing Mm. Justin, as a sociologist, do you have some reflections on Winston as a process for communicating, collecting, analysing, perhaps research? Um, yeah, I'd like to know more. <laughs> so, um, just that's such an interesting taste of it. Um, yeah, I think it's you're, you're right. It's something about the the communicative inequalities that exist. So that um, you know there is a lot of um, kind of voice given to particular communities and the voices of people who are actually experiencing these issues is, is downplayed. Um, and it's it's out there. It's also about how much we attune ourselves to it and actually make space to listen to it as well. I think that's really important. And um, I think the question about the noise is interesting too, that um, the way that vocal performance obviously in um, particular cultures the voice is really really important and voice is sort of the main means of communication and poetry and oral communication is really important so I think mm. that obviously is something that Anya's so working jo- with there. Joel who was supposed to be here who does the survival guide if he was here he would say we've been telling stories forever like radio was a medium that was built for us yeah do you, do you find that yeah absolutely I mean most of the most of the poems were recorded in one take you know it it is something that the way people talk and the way people tell stories in Fiji lends itself 
it lends itself to radio as a medium, of course. Um, and I think, I mean, one of the most interesting kind of things that I came up against with the whole podcasting thing, well, two things. Firstly, is people didn't know what a podcast is. They were kind of like, yeah, podcasts are, are white people things. Like that's weird, <laughs> whatever, you know. But secondly, also in places like Kiribati, there's no internet. You know, I mean, there is internet. That's an exaggeration. There is internet. But to upload a photo, I had to stand on a seawall, like, you know, with my arm outstretched for like half an hour to get a photo <laughs> to upload. So even thinking about like recording something on a phone and uploading it, it's not possible. It's just not compatible with what is actually going on there. So I think that really threw up some interesting questions because, you know, firstly, when people don't know what a podcast is or why on earth they should make a podcast or even care about it. You know, of course, if you describe it as something that you record and put on the internet, that's a very different thing, right? But the word podcast in itself has got particular associations. And secondly, when the infrastructure isn't there maybe to support it in the same way that it is in Australia or wherever else, you know, there are other questions about whose voice gets heard, you know, and what are you kind of listening to as well, you know? Yeah. I also wonder... On the other side, the people consuming it, if you read that same story in print, how much it affects you as opposed to hearing their voice and being put in the place. Mm -hmm. So I think right now we're very much talking about the, you know, producing it and how that, but I wonder, I don't have an answer for this, but on the other side, people consuming it, how much they might be affected by it. Have you looked at anything like that? Yeah, well, one of the – this fantastic show – I'm going to totally plug this show. This fantastic show actually came out of one of the podcasting workshops. It's called Two Fishes Show, and it's by two Indigenous Fijian women, um, Mary and Christelle, and they are – that one of – Christelle is a scientist um, and a, a – a podcaster, a radio maker, a poet. Mary is a storyteller and works in media and communications. And they do this amazing show from everything from politics to like aquaculture to pop culture. Like it's really expansive and far ranging. And it's a kind of chat show and they've got music and things like that. And you know, when they put it up on social media, like they learn how to do podcasting at the beginning of the year. It came out a few months later. They put it up on social media and everybody loved it. You know, and by everyone, I mean like people in Suva in Fiji who are listening to it. You know, I mean, it's gotten obviously a wider reach as well. But, you know, people who they were making it for, their friends, their family, people, you know, in Suva, um, really, really got into it, you know. And so there is really something to be said about listening to the sounds of the place where you are and people engaging with it. And, of course, there is a different experience to listening to someone's voice and someone narrating something than reading it. I wonder how that works in places like Kiribati. So you're saying that there's, it's like so hard to get access to the internet there. So when the local communities are making podcasts, how are they then listened to? How are they consumed? It's not. <laughs> it's not. I mean, you can put stuff over terrestrial radio. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of internet, there's just not the bandwidth speed. It's just not, you can't download stuff. Is that a limit then of, of podcasting? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, recording audio and then putting it onto the radio station. Mm. I, I, is that a podcast, Dylan? I don't know. <laughs> what, 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 is, what is a podcast? Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's digital first, right? So technically that would qualify as a podcast. So digital first, who knows? Yeah, I don't think the podcast police are going to storm yeah. in there. <laughs> they do exist, though. Yeah. 
Sure they do. So we're going to move on now to a podcast produced by Miles in partnership with The Guardian. So this was a 2SER Guardian partnership uh, called Breathless about a death in custody. And I want to get uh, Miles to talk about making this podcast and, and actually the emotional toll that this took on you as you are producing this podcast. Here's Breathless. Uh, before you play it, can yeah. I just say there's a content warning that I think you will yeah. play, but... It's pretty graphic, um, so if anyone has any concerns going in, yeah, it's, it's some graphic content, I think. From yeah. The following program contains the name or names of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples who have since deceased. Please be warned. This program contains strong language and describes a death in custody of which is very graphic. The most traumatic thing is seeing the footages of what happened. Like, that's something that's going to be playing in my mind forever. Like, uh, I think of that about at least once a day. On the morning of December 29th, 2015, David Dungay Jr. started eating a packet of Tim Tams he bought from the buy-ups inside Long Bay Jail. But back in his cell, David was told to stop eating his biscuits and was given just two minutes to comply with corrective service officers before they stormed his cell. What happened next was captured on video. David's nephew Paul and his mother Latona have seen it. They storm the room, shields first, and tackle him to the ground. My uncle's saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Stop, please. I'm trying to help you. They just continue saying, stop resisting, Dunge. Stop resisting, Dunge. He's saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. They're saying, oh, you're talking so you can breathe. They start walking him towards the north end with his head down, and he... Still telling him that he can't breathe. And they say to him, stop spitting, you grub. He's spitting out the blood that they busted his mouth when they stormed the cell with the shield. That's how his nose got flat. They smashed his face with the shield. They've covered his mouth and you could hear, sort of like when you're in the water and you're trying to talk and water gets in your mouth, you could hear him saying, like, I can't breathe. And his voice is goggling water, but it's actually blood that they busted his mouth. I heard that with my own ears and so was all my family. So he put his foot at the back of his rib and pressured down like, like he was a dead dog laying there. When I first heard that piece, I was driving the car and it just like really, really hit me hard emotionally. How Like how do you make radio like that um well i think well that's the first time i've heard it in a long time um i think when you're making it it's easier because you're going through it really technically you know so i probably listened to that 150 times when i was making it cutting it up um but it's really technical right you're thinking about how you can best convey this message how it works how the sound's going to work, how the words come together. Um, so you don't necessarily think about the emotional toll. Um, but it can definitely 
become embedded into your subconscious. And it's quite hard, but I will say my experience of it is not anything compared to the experience of the family member who had to relive that and tell that to me first on the phone when I met him three years ago. You know, then when I went up to Kempsey to go see him off the record and then for, you know, a third time when I finally had developed this relationship and put a microphone in his face and said, hey, could you tell this story to a wider Australian audience because I think the Australian audience needs to hear it. For them and for the family over the course of the two weeks that I spent with them, I I just, yeah, any emotional toll that I took on me, I I can't imagine what it has left them with. Um, But in terms of making that radio, I, I think I do my best to not think about it um, and even now, three months out of it, I think if I stop for a second and try and contemplate the weight of it, um, that's pretty dangerous territory. I imagine some of the stuff that you have saw as well, developing relationships with these people, you know, they really feel like your family and your friends. Um, and I think there's a question for me as well about broadcasting that, putting it out there. How are people going to consume it? Um, are we making money off of it? Is it being, how is it being digested? Um, so lo- I think for me, the ethical issues were removed from the actual making and more in, in the process of disseminating it and broadcasting it to the world. Mm. It's a powerful piece. Um, I might play a clip then. I want to get onto ethics because journalistic ethics are quite different to academic ethics. And I often ask myself when I'm sitting behind the mic, Am I an academic here? Am I a journalist? Which sort of ethical frame am I using? So I might play a clip that is actually an interview with Liz Taylor. Sorry, just going to fast forward there. Um, Where we're talking about this issue. Do you consider yourself when you're on the radio a journalist or an academic? I think when we were doing the Triple R show we were journalists with a particular field of expertise and the way that community radio tends to work is that they discourage um, production values and it's more about talking and having people you know a very broad range of listeners in the case of triple r they have several hundred thousand listeners which is it's huge for a community radio station and people are just listening to whatever is of interest and then since moving to doing the podcast which is downloaded by people that have an interest in that field, I've tended to approach it more as being an extension of my academic life, but without really having planned it, kind of doing research. But then you highlight in your paper the different, the how you're going to use it, etc. And when so, it comes so to... So journalistic ethics are almost the inverse of academic ethics. So Pretty much. When, yeah. with a, when you're an academic, you say, I'm not going to tell anybody who you are. Yes. But when you're a journalist, you say, I'm going to tell everybody who you are. And that's why you're going to do it, right? Because yeah. you want everyone... Um, and if you're going to be uh, offer confidentiality on a podcast, you'd have to be doing stuff like putting, you know, distortion on their voice or something mm. like that. They're completely different. And then that changes when you're only having contact with someone once. I've often had to decide, do I want to interview this person for a podcast or as mm. research? Because then um, you have different kinds of consent. And as far as uh, podcasting or journalism goes, the only kind of restrictions that I'm aware of is that people have to verbally consent to being recorded. Yeah. Do you think we undermine some of our credibility as researchers when we 
almost dumb down the findings of our research. Definitely a risk. And I should say that another reason why I got into podcasting and and the community radio show was some of the work I did with Joe Hurley at RMIT on uh, research practice translation and engagement between practitioners and researchers, where the title of one of our papers there. So I might throw to you, how do you navigate this space between university ethics, which would actually say you can't tell anybody who, who you're interviewing and therefore you can't put their voices on the radio. How do you navigate that with what you're doing? To be really honest, actually, I I never thought I'd be one of the people who would say this. I actually really appreciate university ethics processes. Um, yeah, I know. I've got I, that on tape now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> actually, take that, you've got to get rid of that. No, only because, only because I also straddle the artistic world. And I have seen, I have to say, so many artistic practitioners go in with very good intentions to work in communities or you know, whatever, you know, and and represent people in ways that I have to say, like, I find really unethical. You know, there's a lot of extractive practices that people don't hold themselves to account for and don't actually think about the impact of what they're doing, um, the way, the, the power dynamics, the, the relationships that people have with people that they're fundamentally pitching as, like, you know, victims or something there are a lot of really bad practices that go on, which is why I said that I do in some ways appreciate university ethics processes because you really have to nail down what you're going to do and you really have to hold yourself to account. And I think for me, I'd never go into a situation without almost that kind of deep rigor around ethics. I think very carefully about my consent forms, you know, and I put a lot of time and care into it. And every time I do an interview with someone, especially around this kind of work, I mean, this is a these are frontline communities affected by climate change. You know, I can't just go in there and say, hey, can I have your story? I'm going to make a lovely radio show about it. You know, like there has to be a conversation. There have to be relationships that are built. There has to be a real care and generosity. You know, um, we have to talk about where this is going to go and if people are happy with their voice being somewhere but also the realities of what does anonymity mean if you can hear someone's voice you know um so I think the way that I approach it maybe is a bit different to the way that other academics might approach it I mean also in my production process I'm constantly in communication with people who I've done interviews with I constantly play them things and say is this okay do you like this do you agree do you disagree they can withdraw their consent so it's a very different kind of process and it's very time consuming but in the work that I do, I couldn't do it any other way, to be mm. honest. Justine, have you got any comments? Um, yeah, I think that's a really great explanation of your relationship and how you've kind of interpreted ethics. I think also the other thing is, um, yes, there is there are different kind of practices in journalism and there are different practices in um, academia and there are a whole range of different practices within both of those spheres as well. But if you think about what they both have in common, they both do research and research ethics are common to both and there's a code of conduct for journalists, you know, there's a code of ethics that they actually subscribe to and there are different levels of consent that um, people give to their information. So, you know, whether it's background or it's on the record. Um, and I think there's a little bit of grey area where that maps over into academia because one of the kind of principles of ethics in research in the university settings is justice. 
and it is justice to attribute um, information to people if they've given it to you and they want to go on the record. So, for example, if with uh, Miles's podcast, if that had been an anonymous source and the people had never been named, it wouldn't have had the same power as a testimonial from somebody. It's quite almost like a coronial um, inquiry that a researcher does in those sort of true crime podcasts. I think it's really interesting how... Um, yeah, you could learn a bit from both, I think, both spheres. And they, that's the thing that's happening. They're blurring a little bit too. Yeah, and I also think when you talk about journalism ethics, you're talking about a very traditional fourth estate model of journalism that actually ha- comes from a very Western-centric ideology. So when you think about journalism, and I think when society broadly reflects on journalism, we talk about it from a Western-centric viewpoint. And... Often the communities that journalists go into use those same Western-centric values of journalism and apply them to the communities that they then turn around and tell stories about. And I think that's just bad practice from the very beginning. So I think there's a, a, a much bigger conversation to have about what journalism ethics really is, because definitely in our own field as journalists, we constantly debate what those even are. Um, and I think, or even over the last two years... Um, it has changed a lot. Yeah, I think it's a question of of power. Um, I think journalists have more power than they than they realize in terms of representation. Um, and I think we, it's like a, a slow realization. I think of maybe the past two decades. I think of just how much power lies in representation. Um, and I think I do agree with you, Anya. I think there are problems with journalistic ethics in terms of. Uh, when you were saying it's a really collaborative process you're always doing back and forth in like I was trained as a journalist if someone I had done an interview said to me can I hear it before it goes to air you just shut down immediately you're trained to be like no I'm the one telling the story and I think these are the kind of conversations that we need to have as that relationship changes I think that's really interesting yeah Mm -hmm. I am going to open up for questions in one second. I just want to play you one of my favorite pieces of academic interviewing that's very heavily soundscape. So someone prep yourself for a soundscape question, uh, and then we'll go to some questions. I was, uh, hang on, I was just wondering, actually, when we get started, should we mention that this is... Uh experimental radio program in which I enter my own brain through my ear and meet a couple of experts along the way who'll explain the nature of cognition and a sense of hearing and all, all that sort of stuff the nature of perception actually should we should we do that now or no no we should leave that out it's too complicated okay fine well he's actually waiting for me down there I can see him uh, down at my eardrum yeah that's uh, Frederick He's the first guy you're going to talk to. He's the uh, guy with the cognitive processes, stuff like that, right? Yeah, he's a nice guy, you know. He's going to show you through your ear. Yeah, here he is. Yeah, hi, my name is uh, Frederick Nielbo. I'm uh, working with uh, auditory perception and how we make sense of sounds. So just to start me off gently, uh, what are we going to be looking at? So I'd like to look at some of the very low-order low processes that are, that are sort of structuring the way that we hear. Right, okay. Are you an ear doctor or...? No, I'm definitely not an ear doctor. What I'm interested in is, is how, how we make sense of the sounds. It's a low-order stuff. What was that? 
Well, it would be all the stuff that's happening happening automatically. So all the stuff that you're not aware of. But but I mean, this this part of the system that that, that I'm going to show you now is is what we share with most other mammals. Uh, this is the the stuff that that sort of creates the foundation for for the things you hear. Cool. Uh, where do we get started? We need to go through the ascending uh, auditory pathway, and I'm going to take you through here. So if we just start here at the at the eardrum, this this marks the uh, the boundary between the outer ear and the and the inner ear. How important is sound design going to be, or already is, for podcasting? Yeah, it's to anyone. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It it ultimately just depends on on what you're going for. I'm I love sound design. Um, it's something I really experiment with and work on it's something i want to get better at um but i don't think it's necessary um and i think a a perfect contrast would be um you know the sample of winston which was just perfect on its own um yeah whereas mine was heaps of layers um headphone experience um i think it's just a stylistic choice yeah i think there are certain shows that can also fall into I don't know, want like a pattern. I guess is a better word than um, a habit. But there are certain shows, really popular shows, that are sound designed the same way every single week, and they get heaps of listenership. I'm not going to throw any names because I'll never get a job ever again. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there are certain shows that sound a certain way, or sound designed a certain way, and you can hear it every single time, and they get really boring. Um, and I think there is a homogenous podcast sound that might be really interesting and super fun for sound designers and sound engineers to do, but it doesn't necessarily lead to conveying the story and telling the story in the best possible way. So I think it can often be over-prioritized in terms of audio storytelling. There's amazing stuff that's going on, and also I think... The, it can be a super artistic as well. There can, you know, we can be talking. We can sit here and talk about art for you know two hours and sound in that space. Um, so it really depends. You know, I, I think there's some you know stuff like Awful Grace where I listen to you know this. It's a magnum opus of sound, and I'm just like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Um, so the yeah. sound of sport. Have you heard that? I, I haven't. Love that. No. Yeah, that's pretty good. But I guess this was a pretty non-answer to your question. <laughs> I do think, no offense, I do think it's very Americanized as well. Yeah. I think the, there's a very That's overproduced taken. style. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, if you listen, what, what's an Australian style? That's a huge question, and I'm in thirty seconds. I'm cynical. <laughs> I don't. I'm not quite sure. I think the cultural cringe might extend into podcasting. I think there's a lot of great Australian podcasts. But I, I think we're in the early days of developing like a real distinctive Australian sound. But feel free to disagree. It's yeah. It's like a million degrees in here. So I am going to why don't we open the door? Um, and we will throw to some questions. Okay, thanks. Um, my name's Anisa Madden. I'm a PhD student at um, the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. I'm in the early stages of my journey as a student and I'm really interested in podcasting as a research method. I guess I'm curious to hear about um, how, more about how 
I could use podcasting as a research method, but also as a way of communicating my research, given that a thesis is a written document. Is podcasting something that you feel can be included in a dissertation combined with, or is that something that you do afterwards? Just like some reflections on that. Thanks. Sounds like your question to me. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean... I guess it's kind of helpful for me to use podcasting as a method because my background is as a radio maker. Um, and so it felt for me like doing the work that I did, I was asking people to give time to me and do interviews and spend time with me. And, you know, so I kind of felt like it's pretty crucial to, you know, for there to be reciprocity. Um, and that felt like a useful skill that people seemed to be interested in and there could be a reciprocitous kind of relationships there. So that was why podcasting was a very good method. I mean, it actually, it wasn't how I planned to do things at all. It was just something that happened to be talking to people about and they were like, oh, yeah, I want to learn how to do that thing. So can you just teach us? Um, so I think in that first instance, it can be very useful like that. I think also there's a very very different dynamic that gets set up if you are trying to interview someone and if someone is doing it themselves. You know what I mean? Um, Also in terms of the podcasting as a method, I suppose people have full creative control over their own content, right? Because you're teaching someone how to edit their own content. So it's not even, you know, someone sitting there and saying, oh, please edit that bit out or, you know, oh, I like that bit, you know, can you include that bit? They literally can do it themselves. You know what I mean? And you don't really get a say. In, in what people want to talk about or how they want to edit it or anything like that. It really is just what people, it's up to them. It's entirely under their control. So I think that's a totally different dynamic than in a traditional kind of academic, you know, interviewer, interviewee kind of situation because <laughs> you're just like, here, I'll teach you how to do this thing and then, you know, do your own thing, you know. Um, and I think it's really fantastic for that. I think also in terms of communicating information, it's a completely different format to writing. And I mean, I personally would say that it would be awesome to have a podcast as a part of a PhD. I would say totally go for it Um, because I think it would also be a great thing to listen to like, you know, for examiners, you can be reading and listening at the same time. And I really, in all of the presentations I do, I play audio recordings because it doesn't seem right to me for me to write down, transcribe an interview with someone and then read it in my voice. Why? You know, when I actually have the recording of the voice right there, I may as well, if people have said, yeah, play my stuff, like I may as well play that, you know, and I think there is something very unique about reading something and actually listening to the person's voice, you know, who is telling that thing. So, I mean, (laughs) I can't do anything but advocate for that. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. Join me in thanking the guests today by giving them a round of applause.